Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's Sarah Streming, the Cog Dog Coach, and this is Cog Dog Radio. Join me as I cover behavior concepts, discuss training ideas, interview experts, and explore my cases, all regarding the dogs we live and play with. Let's go. In the current climate in the field of dog training and behavior, there's a lot of discussion of omission. Trainers valiantly cry out about what it is they omit in dog training, and what I care about is what they actually do, not what they leave out. So from time to time on the podcast, I'm going to feature other trainers who work in the field, and we will discuss a case they consider resolved. I will ask them questions about their process, and I hope to showcase what dog training looks like through an applied lens rather than a theoretical one. So today for the trainer showcase, I have my friend, Ashley. Ashley, will you please share your first and last names and pronouns? Yep. My name is Ashley Johnson. My pronouns are she, her. And we are here today to talk about a board and train case of yours, a little Boston Terrier. So tell us about this guy, why he was with you, and we'll dive into all the details, but what's the gist? What was this case? Yeah, absolutely. So Buck is now about a year old. Uh, At the time that they contacted me, they were referred to me from another company. He was 13 weeks old when he was referred to me. And their chief initial complaints were that they were unable to pick him up or move him or do any sort of husbandry without him screaming, biting, breaking skin with his tiny little puppy teeth. Uh, And it did escalate to panic when they were trying to put his harness on or leash on. Um, So pretty big responses to being handled. And especially with kids in the house, they needed to get it under control. And 13 weeks old, like big, that's some big responses for for a 13 week old. Big feelings. Was there anything that you picked up that maybe led to this? Or did this feel like a suite of behaviors that he kind of came with? I think he probably came with it, at least to some extent. I think that the breed lends itself. We've talked before about bracky dogs having a hard time with husbandry, and I think that he is very much one of those. And he didn't have any real traumatic events early on. His owner was in the vet industry uh, previously. Uh, He did have kids at home. Not extrapolated the issue a little bit, but he came to them with that issue for sure. Um, For reference, the kids were ages four and 10. And of course they had a saint of an old dog and an old cat. So the kids were very used to handling the dog in a certain way. And now they had a dog that they really could not handle that way. Okay. And just to sidebar, cause I think people will be curious about what you just said. You and I have talked about a lot of brachy, brachycephalic breeds struggling with essentially restraint. I think it's because of breathing being a challenge for them structurally. So I don't know for sure. That's my guess. If you talk to any vet or vet tech, they will tell you that yes, doing toenails on a pug is hell and <laughs> things like that is it's really tough. My whole family has pugs. It's it's a pretty much across the board issue. And so you were seeing this with him. He was really, really averse to being picked up, restrained in any way, dressed, so having a harness or anything put on. And then certainly like basic husbandry tasks were off the table because you can't, you can't even pick the thing up. If you can't even pick the thing up, (laughs) you can't even, you definitely can't do toenails. Right. Yeah. Um, And he's tiny. So there are times when you need to pick a tiny dog up and he was thrashing and biting and panicking. Exactly. Yeah. And okay. On top of that tiny little baby puppy, uh, the additional problem that they came to me with was that they were unable to take him out for socialization for the, very clear above listed reasons. So we had to have a solution for him to get out and about, see the world a little bit as well. He was a pretty bold guy, but needed to make sure that he was able to leave the house. So like they wanted to pick him up, put him in the car, put a harness on him, things like that. Like these were the barriers to that. Yeah. Yeah. Literally couldn't pick him up, couldn't put him in the car, couldn't put a leash on him. When they contacted me, he had broken skin on most of the family and tiny little pointy puppy teeth, but it's still a real still, problem. Yeah, it ain't nothing. <laughs> it ain't nothing. So, okay. You get him in your house. What's your first move? Like, how? what's day one looking like for him? Yeah, so luckily for us, day one was an intake lesson. So I got to meet him, got to see the house. Mm-hmm. That was Great. pretty important. Got to meet the kids. 
I ended up having him for three weeks total, which ideally I would have had him for four or five. We had some barriers for that. I am very lucky that uh, our company has access to fenced acreage. And so day one, day two, three, oftentimes with the board and train is some acclimation. Uh, there's an inherent mild flooding that they get with a big change in scenery like that. So mm-hmm. we spend so the first couple of days to offer them that decompression outside. Safely. Yeah, we spend the first couple yeah. of days getting them to decompress, getting them used to our routines of when they're moving in and out of spaces, when they're going to be in the car, when they're eating. And normally I would allow a dog a couple of days to settle in with very little formal training sessions, but quite a bit of just how to function, how to take reinforcement, all of my normal foundations that I want a dog to have. With him, the initial really big piece was being able to shift him around, being able to move him. He's little, he's not reliable off leash, so I can't just lure him everywhere. He did have a really high food drive, which was fantastic. Uh, But big goal one for him was getting him to load in and out of a soft carrier so that I could move him anywhere I needed to without physically touching him. Really, That was always a big part of the plan. And that was uh, our planned contingency for the kids moving him around too. The owners were super on board with all of the training. Even before I got him in the couple days leading up to when I got him, they weren't having the kids pick him up anymore. And they knew ahead of time that the plan was if the kids had to move him, that they would go get a carrier so that he would run into the carrier and then they could move him that way without picking him up. Um, So that was goal one training wise for us. I broke his meals into a lot of meals and he got his kibble all throughout the day for running into the carrier. And then I would initially just start by moving the carrier slightly with him in it, feeding him some very normal conditioning. And really by luckily because of his food drive by day two or three, I was able to move him super easily just in the carrier. So it really removed the need for me to be hands-on with him in a way that he would find uncomfortable. I was able to move him around very easily with that kind of workaround that we made. And that's essentially, that's the point of management being your first order of business. Like I think sometimes management just gets a bad rap, like in our industry, people are like, well, he's with you for board and train. Why aren't you, why are you managing? It's so important to first not have the dog experience this problem in a way that it can't function so that you can then break it down, split it, build the behavior back up. So really, really clever first thing is to just, yeah, get him hopping in that soft crate that you could pick up and move around. Yeah, which got him some exercise. It was easy for him. Yes, yeah. yeah. He had immense food drive uh, during the intake in home lesson that I did to just test everything and see kind of how extreme things were before I gave them any sort of serious written goals. He had very, very high levels of food drive. So that makes teaching skills quite a bit easier. It doesn't necessarily make, obviously, the panic of his issues any easier, but it for sure made teaching skills like this and, and husbandry quite a bit easier. Okay, what's next? You got him hopping in a little Bucky elevator, going up and down. <laughs> you got him some exercise. Yeah. So got him some exercise, got a routine, got him moving around. And I was also, in this case, able to get him integrated with my dogs. That's a pretty rare thing that I do. I am an in-home board and train, which means they're in my house. But because I do that as a large part of my job, I don't ask my dogs to tolerate that very often. They just so happened to meet him through Barrier and all were really excited to see him. They like tiny dogs. So he got to integrate into my dogs. That also helped me move him around the house. Got him a little jumpstart on his socialization, which of course his uh, owners really like. And then our additional training plans included the socialization. Uh, We had to get into picking him up and nail trims and putting gear on. And I had a different plan for each one of those. Some of them went a little bit more smoothly than others. So the next big goal was being able to pick him up and move him around. I did a combination of some basic conditioning with food. I did end up using an offered sit as a start button. He was offering it because they had been teaching him some manding. And so I used that as a start button where he would sit when he was ready to be picked up. I would say scoop as a warning before touching or lifting and then feed him on picking him up and very quickly move to setting him back down and then feeding him afterwards. I wanted it to be a really 
streamlined procedure where they didn't have to have food in their hands at the house. So got the food to a remote position pretty early on Mm. for that. That's smart. Um, Can I ask a question? So clarify that mm -hmm. when you say basic conditioning, you're kind of stimulus, stimulus pairing. Like I'm going to pick you up. I'm going to feed you, pick you up, feed you. Like, did you split that down? Like I'm going to wrap my hand around the rib cage, feed you, or did you, were you lifting from the beginning? Yeah, absolutely. In that case, I was lining him up with a lure. So I ended up lining him up kind of across my shins. So there's a very Mm -hmm. clear picture for him. Mm -hmm. And I did have a lure in my hand initially. So I would use that with one hand and my other hand would just go to the outside of his body. I wasn't able to touch him. Um, Very nice piece of his genetics was that he did choose avoidance pretty much always when he had the chance. So if I put my hand to the outside of his body the first day or two, he would initially back away. His food drive was really high. So he would, I would just be still, he would walk back into the little channel I made and I would feed him and we were able to build from there. And even a week or two in, as I was pushing criteria a little bit, he would occasionally, as I would pick him up, touch him, something like that, that he found a little hard, the next rep, he would back away initially and then be like, wait, no, I'm cool. And then come back in and continue the work with me. Okay. And so he started giving you that offered sit. Did he start to do that when you said scoop? Like, did you, when did you put that warning cue in there? And then when was the start button being thrown at you? Right. So for him, he was sitting with the cue of me holding food. Cause that was one mm. of the things they had worked on. Very so good. he okay. thought me holding food was a cue to sit because they'd done some manding And I was able to wait until he sat to say scoop. And so he associated the sitting with the scooping with the unpleasant stimuli with the pleasant stimuli, like all kind of cycled together. Excellent. Everything's going swimmingly. Oh, yeah. Why'd you have this dog so long? Why why did you want to have him even longer? (laughs) (laughs) So... He um, was able to load in the crate in the first couple days. I was able to pick him up and move him on and off the couch within the first couple of days. And then the real issue arose when we started to try and dress him. My uh, initial plan for them, because they had had some really traumatic moments uh, at his house with putting a collar on, putting a harness on. My initial plan was for them to be able to move him around by a slip leash just because they wouldn't have to physically touch him at all to be able to put it on and take it off. Um, So that was was the plan, a very well-intentioned plan here. And what ended up happening there was the presence of the leash, the presence of a harness was such a strong negative association for him that it would incite running away, it would incite pretty high levels of avoidance. He also, even with his really high levels of food interest, would turn down food when I was holding a a leash or a harness, even if I kind of layered them into a session where he was having a lot uh, correct repetitions with picking up or creating the behaviors that at this point he was quite fluent in. Um, So around the end of week one, I had gotten into the point where the slip leash being open and being held open as a loop and food on the other side, where he was putting his head through the loop for the food. I was paying, he was being allowed to back out. And he got to the point where the leash touched his neck as he was eating the food. And he had a full meltdown about a leash being fully around his neck. So in that like moment of panic, he backed up and took the leash with him. Oh no. And then I couldn't and it get it chased off him. Of him. It chased him, it, it attacked him. He had the hardest little time. Were realized. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I had a thought previously when I was working through this, because I have an initial plan, but of course I'm always ready to pivot and I have ideas as I'm training the dog and getting to know them because I don't know them that well when they come to me as well that he was young enough that I was really curious about his ability to settle after some level of continuous stimuli. So if the leash was tight on him during his first little initial panic, if the leash was tight and I just held it and talked to him and was like, hey, buddy, you're okay. You can do this. Mm -hmm. And nothing was escalating. Nothing was getting worse. If he could soothe himself, take a breath, and 
if I could use that moment to show him that it wasn't going to be the death of him, which in all of his previous histories, of course, if he thrashed, if he bit, he was let go. He was, you know, able to wiggle out of the leash. And so I was really curious because he was so young, if he could have a moment and then recover from it and we could find a shortcut in this. In his case, that was clearly not true because when I held the leash still, he totally fell apart and that's where the full bracky gremlin noises came in. And then I got in a little tricky spot on that session because he would bite at the leash when I went to lower the leash and give him enough slack to try and get the slip leash off of him. And then I couldn't get it off of him because he would try to bite me when I did. And so it was just this little really bad training session. I think it's important to talk about those because they for sure happen. Yeah, you had this whole session where he was pretty sure you were going to kill him with the leash. Uh You were feeling very determined to push to the other side of this session, which I don't blame you for. And I do think that happens to all of us. That happens to all, whether you're in a board and train or you have the client sitting there. In fact, I feel like it's more likely to happen with the client sitting there. Like in board and train, you can, you can walk away and come back in 30 minutes. If a client has paid you for an hour slot, you feel really really pressured, really compelled Mm -hmm. to get to the other side of it. So we're just, we're really happy that the client wasn't because then you would have had to be like dealing with that socially in addition. Yeah, I would have, I would have probably, we would have spent the rest of the lesson talking about why I made that choice and why oh, totally. it's not the right choice for him, which is right, just a derailment right. of the lesson. It's one of the benefits it of is. board and train is that it is one of I the benefits can rotate. of board and train is that you get to yeah. pivot without explaining your pivot. You get to just kind of go. And this does happen to everyone. Is there anything you wish you had done differently in that session looking back? Or do you feel like it was just important the way it happened and it's okay? I feel like it was... Obviously, ultimately, it is okay because spoiler alert. Right. Because this, this is a case resolution yes. case. <laughs> yes. right? I do I do feel like if the owner was there, I probably would have made the same decision because my history of 13-week-old dogs is that they probably, even if they have a big panicky moment, often mm-hmm. will come down. And that, that wouldn't be my training plan. But in that moment, I would like to show the dog the path to things settling down afterwards. And so I think in front of the client, I probably would have still made the same decision. It would have derailed the lesson. I think doing it over again, if I had same dog second time, uh, I probably would have just let him go back in a crate with the leash on a lot sooner and let him settle. It was probably, you know, it felt like a decade, but it was probably like... 20 seconds of him panicking, but 20 seconds when you're training a dog that's panicking feels bad, man. Well, 20, you're speaking from experience when you are panicking, 20 seconds feels like a (laughs) lifetime as well. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's not fun for me. It's not how I train. So that would never be my plan. How I handle the dog going over threshold, because that was the one time he truly went over threshold in the three weeks that I had him. And I, I do think that Probably doesn't matter how I handled it. The fact that he panicked it means he's not learning well anyway. So kind of regardless of how I handled it, the important part is like what I do next and that I'm for sure not going to do that again because I'm a one event learner because I'm soft. That was aversive uh, enough for you. That yeah. was very aversive for an Ashley. So this is the uh, point where the trainer panics and pivots and consults their entire training cabinet and Uh thinks about giving up on this career, you know, Um, (laughs) which just for everybody listening, again, this does happen to everybody, but consulting your entire cabinet, what a valuable thing to have, right? Like build the cabinet, support the cabinet, love the cabinet, take care of the cabinet because you need the cabinet because nobody, then the cabinet gifts. Yeah. And nobody has send the cabinet gifts because nobody's an island. It's right. This can get, especially board and train, can get really lonely without a cabinet. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, I, I for sure grown from this case and been able to pass this information on to other people who are in my cabinet. So it's all, it's all just a learning process, even for us. So clearly 
I did not do that again. Dressing Mm -hmm. him became my primary focus. From a professional standpoint, I, of course, update the owner. It's a little bit, there's a balance to updating them on everything went terribly uh, versus telling them, hey, this is really hard for your dog. And usually the direction that I come at it from is, hey, I have now been able to load him in and out of the crate. I can pick him up for short periods of time and move him on and off the couch, which is one of the big things. Move him in and out of his playpen. I am able to take him out socializing in his little shopping cart uh, setup. So I had a <laughs> I had yeah. I had a puppy stroller that closed entirely. So he was able to get socialization. Hey, I'm able to do all of these things we talked about. I am seven days in and this is going to be the rest of his time here. It's really, really tough for him. And I think setting expectations and on, you know, day seven out of 21 or something also gives you good client buyback. So they trust you a little bit more. If you turn over a dog who's not totally at the milestone that we had talked about previously, it's Mm -hmm. not a surprise to them. And I honestly think that it's a little bit empowering for them too to hear that their dog is as hard as they thought it was. So I, I don't have a problem reaching out. So I did reach out to her and talked about it and it really just became a priority shift. So basically all of his progression repetitions were now on this and everything else was a little bit on maintenance mode and mixed in so that he would have some easy repetitions thrown in there. The pivot that I chose to make was no more slip leash because putting something over his head and I talked to the client a little more and found that Things, especially behind his ears, were pretty tricky for him. So um, clasping buckles behind his neck was pretty hard. She did think that there was a chance that he had had skin pinched in the clip when he was younger. So really there was likely, potential. Really likely as well as. Yeah. He's wiggling. In general, skin sensitive as a as a breed, I find. Yeah. And then pretty yeah, touchy. Because when I raised Junebug, part Boston, part Pug, just really touchy about clipping collars or harnesses on her body it's obviously it doesn't even need to have caught the skin if it just barely you know have you ever like clipped something on that was just like like just tight enough that like you feel it you get like a a hair hair in a zipper hair yeah Yeah. and she just learned i yeah she was just like don't don't touch me with that get that off of me and also the same kind of dog that like you know big responses to vaccines big responses to things like that bigger than like say Raya. Right. Right. So yeah, really. Yeah. Very resilient about some things. Body handling and getting not dressed it. is not one not of them. One. Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. For sure. <laughs> yeah. So the plan ended up becoming to have a collar on him. Um, he was quite body sensitive. So we did decide collar, not harness. Um, so that I could have something on him that I could then clip a leash to. And of course, I have to have something on him to train that there can be something on him. Like there's, there's not a lot of splitting on that because hands coming towards him was such a poison cue at that point mm. that I was deep in the hole and there is a timeline issue with board and train. So there starts to become, okay, I have two weeks left. What can I do with the rest of my time? And what we decided on was a martingale collar that was slightly too big for him, not big enough that it could come over his head, but I wanted enough room that he could grow into it because the plan that I ran by his owner was that it would stay on him 24 Mm seven until they were ready to switch him out to his next size up. And we were always very realistic that he's a dog that she may never be able to handle easily. He's a dog that maybe never will be able to do veterinary procedures without medication or Mm -hmm. anesthesia. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of the place that where we landed was a martingale collar. The getting it on him portion is not like good training podcast material. It's just that when he was in his crate, where I had worked on handling him in a crate, actually, where he was when he was in a crate, I just put it on him and made it not a big deal. And we moved on with our lives. There were options here. Um, My wonderful business partner, Rachel Vogt, offered to just, she's like, hey, do you want me to just be the bad guy and be the one to do it? And then Mm -hmm. his associations are at least with me and not with you. And in a mix of a little like feeling that I could do it and probably a little bit of stubbornness because I just had that really bad training session. I was like, no, I think I can do it without panic. So the important parts for this moment were that his history of being leashed was not in a crate. He did not have any history of collars or harnesses going on him in a crate. 
So every repetition he had of me reaching into a crate had been trained and he didn't have the ability to move away, which good and bad here in this case, from a perspective of someone who wants to give a dog a lot of choice, I really value in our other training sessions that he was able to back up and then choose to come back and re-engage if he was a little overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. And in this case, that wasn't really an option in this moment. It was an option in every other moment and every other training session. But because I needed to get some piece of equipment on him under a timeline, I chose to, like we said, just put it on him. So I did order a martingale that had a clip to it because if it slid over his head on the way on, it would slide over his head on the way off. So Mm -hmm. I needed to make sure it fit him. It would stay on him. And I didn't make it look like a training picture because I didn't want to poison the training picture. He had in other cases, seen the leash and been like, no, I know what this is. So he's Mm. obviously a very clever dog that puts things together really quickly. And so it didn't look like a training session. He didn't have any history of moving away. And I think partially in part because he couldn't move away, he, it wasn't, it wasn't a problem. I reached in and I put the collar on him kind of almost before he knew it was happening. And I didn't carry myself like we were training and I didn't carry myself like we were going to get in a fight. So it wasn't training and we didn't get in a fight. And it's, it is a little hard to explain. I wish I had that session on video, but it wasn't a session. It was just, okay, buddy, now this has to go on you. And he backed up to the back of the crate. How fast do you think it went? Oh, almost instant. Yeah. Like less less than 30 seconds. We're talking. Oh, for sure. He backed up. You put the collar on him and then moved on. And then I took him out of the crate and we went on a walk. Okay. I can hear some trainers listening saying, you horrible person, you removed all that dog's agency. And then I can hear other trainers saying, why didn't you just only do that? Why didn't you just reach in, put it on, go on the walk and like do that repeatedly? Right. I want you to speak first to the folks who are thinking, why didn't you just do that? Because you didn't. That wasn't your whole procedure then. That was literally a... And a means to an end. Like you needed him to wear the yes. thing. So you put the thing on him. It wasn't your training plan. Right. Did it, that was did, not my training plan. But did plan. it cross your mind that this could be the whole training plan? No. Because How come? every time he had been exposed to a scenario that was a little uncomfortable, the next time we did it, he was like, no, no, no. I remember this. Mm-hmm. The only reason I was able to do it was because I only had to do it once. And he didn't panic because he didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah. He wouldn't but let he, you the next time. But he would have the next time, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So excellent answer. Thank you. And then <laughs> I will speak to the people who said, who, who are saying you removed all that dog's agency. She did remove all that dog's agency in that moment, out of necessity, and then did not do it repeatedly. Right. That's the important bit, is that you're not then going to do it repeatedly. Sometimes when I suggest to people to put a harness on their puppy and then leave it on their puppy until they size up and they need to put the next one on they think you know how awful or they do that and then I've had many cases where they didn't communicate to other family members that this needed to stay on and then other family members removed it and then they went to try to do the same thing again this is the beauty of board and train that would never happen in your scenario right but if you had somebody else who just walked in and then were like oh mommy forgot to take your collar off took it off now mommy has to corner you in the back of the crate and shove this on you again. <laughs> like now right. we but, do and the second have, time is n- yeah, now we got a problem because he's gonna fight you the second time because he knows the scenario. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. yeah, and it would have escalated. And also I don't want to get bit, so if it had started to escalate, I'm gonna let him have his space and yeah, I'm not about had, to get bit to put a collar had on him. Actually panicked in that scenario or or bit you in that scenario, you wouldn't have had an ego about it and pushed on. You would have said, okay, what's the next plan? Because it wasn't that one. Because Yeah, because that wasn't yeah. it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think it's sometimes hard so, for people to put those puzzle pieces together and kind of understand that like sometimes you kind of need to just do something and that's only okay if you don't push the dog into panic or aggression. Yeah. Because if you yeah, do, he, it is counter to your goals. Right. He wasn't, yeah. he wasn't aggressing and that was the whole point. The whole he was point. uncomfortable for sure. Sure. But yeah. Just the ones. Yeah. So the other extra thing that I did with his collar was I did, um, because he really doesn't have a lot of unsupervised time because he's a client dog, also attach a metal water bucket clip to his collar. And I did that for a couple of reasons. That was 
one, because he had a really hard time with things touching his feet and I didn't want to have to spend my training reps on the leash touching his feet. So if he has a clip hanging from his collar slightly and it kind of hits the front of his legs as he runs around our property and plays with his friends, who's a really good player, he's going to desensitize to it in a way that's completely detached from humans and that I don't have to use my repetitions on. And that worked really well. He, the first day, wasn't moving around very much. He was moving, but like stiltedly like he was like I don't know what to do with this thing touching me really yeah I really am sad um by day two or three he was moving just fine I will occasionally with really touch sensitive dogs have my lessons clients puppies drag uh, a really light drag line around the house while they're moving around I chose for something a little heavier on him partially because I wanted him to get used to the weight of a leash and partially because with a clip hanging there I was able to not have to grab his collar to put his leash on I was able to clip it to the end of that clip which Mm -hmm. gave me a couple more inches away from his body which became a really important split for putting his leash on. Okay, so you've got him wearing this martingale. It's got a big double-ended clip on it so that it's easy access for you. He had kind of adjusted to that. Like that was a little bit of a... Yeah, gave him a couple days. Wearing this, but you gave him a couple days to adjust to that. And then what? And then I trained him for two more weeks. I worked on, I did end up doing a chin rest as a start behavior for the leash. He had a really, really long history of backing away for the leash. So I wanted something that would bring him closer. So I did a chin rest and then would go from his chin down to the clasp and worked on that for a couple of days to where when I did a chin rest, he was kind of pushing forward and I was able to grab the clasp and feed him. There was a lot of a, a lot of just feed in this dog for tiny little splits that he didn't even notice. That was that was the whole point. I did end up pairing the sound of the leash clip with food as well. So mm. because that had been something previously that he'd had a hard time with, I, without ever touching his collar, split that off, would clip the leash noise, scatter food on the ground, and was able to use that essentially as a marker to help kind of build better feelings about the leash going on him. I had a really nice kind of added benefit that when he actually got a collar on because he had just been a little naked Boston until that point, they they hadn't been able to have anything on him. He did the very normal puppy itchies with his collar and he was like, this thing is on me and I don't really want it. And because of that, he suddenly was very interested in me touching his collar and scratching underneath it. So that became uh, unplanned benefit unplanned benefit to that mm. one did not plan that one happily I used wouldn't have, it wouldn't have thought about that would have definitely used it to my advantage yeah so was still using food and when we started working on gear we'd been using kibble for picking them up crating all this normal stuff and i did pull out the big guns just because there was no reason not to so he was getting shredded chicken and roast beef and all sorts of things that were really great to carry in a treat pouch in Texas in the summer. And (laughs) because I had that big difference in reinforcers, I was able to, uh, picking him up at this point was quite easy. And so picking him up, I was able to scratch under his collar as reward most of the time with that. And then I switched to really good food for any of the dressing him um, and eventually the husbandry when we got to that. So we did quite a bit of pairing, touching the food. I added in touching his collar. I added in more duration. When I worked up to about four seconds of duration, I began clipping the leash next to him. Uh, He already had the association that the leash clip meant food. And then I added in clipping to near the collar. And the first time I clipped the leash to his collar was fully an accident. It was so close to his collar that it happened to clip. And I Mm. noticed, did my reinforcement procedure, and then did the same procedure to take it off. And Mm. he was like, huh. And the fact that he didn't notice other than a little like curiosity I think was probably one of the biggest goals that we had here one of the biggest like wins that we had yeah and I love that you didn't you didn't freak out and you just did your next rep 
Like you just did your next rep. I think a lot of people would have tried to take it off, but that's another rep. So you just breathed, fed the dog, did your next rep to take it off rather than I think sometimes when things don't go as planned, people make it worse by trying to get out of it. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> rather I mean, than I just did. Like, just go on day seven. Next- Go, yes. <laughs> Interesting. In there. Funny. We brought that back around. <laughs> brought that back around. <laughs> so where are we at? Like, like, is this now end of week two when you had three total weeks that, that you were about there? Yeah. So in the week two, middle of the third week, I had really met kind of my personal goals for being able to leash him, the routine that we introduced did include picking him up to leash him or leashing him in the crate because his little history of backing away was still there. And what I really didn't want was for them to out of habit pursue him. In my house, it would have been fine for him to back up, make the choice to come in and re-engage with the training. But in his case, he was fine being held for his leash up routine. and He was fine being leashed up in the crate. We trained both of those skills. That was a pretty robust behavior by the middle of week three. And so I was able to go back to the original goals and add that husbandry back in at the end. When we had talked after he'd had his little meltdown, the leashing up procedure became the biggest goal. And then I ended up meeting it just a little bit ahead of schedule, which was great. So I was able to add that husbandry goal back in. And because of our history together because he trusted me at this point because he knows that a procedure that I ask him about ends in good things and isn't going to cause panic. I was able to teach him nail trims and a face wiping set up in the last couple of days that I had him. And I'm just forever grateful that he wasn't a high grooming breed like a poodle. (laughs) Right, 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 right. Do you feel like everything you'd done up to that point, like, was the reason you could just swim straight into the husbandry? Like, did it surprise you how easy that stuff was? You know, it didn't surprise me in the moment because we had such a good communication system in the last week. It would have surprised me at the beginning if you told me that I would teach his nail trims and his face wiping behavior in three or so days. I would not have believed you probably. But yeah, I think it was that he understood what a training session looked like. And he understood that it was always going to be in his benefit. And because all of the other goals that we were working on were hands on, I think that that made it really easy for him as well. I think that if all of his other goals had been obedience skills, leash walking, and they hadn't been as hands on, it wouldn't have happened as quickly. It's one of those things that this shows up for me a lot that some of our tougher skills that we tend to work on like early and often because they're such hard skills, we would actually be smarter to wait until the dog has a rapport with you and has an understanding of training and has a good understanding of reinforcers before we dove into those skills. And I think nail trims are kind of one of those things that we like dive in on them right away because dogs have nails right away that are growing right away. Right. Right. So and everything's easier with a puppy, right? They learn faster. Well, (laughs) yes. And I mean, sure. Right. As we say, I like to set up just kind of no choice. You can just eat through this situations with like young, young mentally stable puppies, just like here's a lick mat or whatever. And I'm going to clip all your nails. And then I'm actively teaching you reinforcer skills and husbandry behaviors that I'm not actually going to use for any real reason until I feel like you've got them and I feel like we have a rapport. So I think that we wreck things sometimes by jumping right in and then, which honestly, this family who didn't expect these curveballs and none of this is their fault, but they did just like start picking them up, start putting collars on them, start doing all the things as you do. Because they were trying to socialize him. Right, but he didn't have any rapport with them and he didn't have any skills. And so it that's why it was a problem. Right. And we could talk for another hour on this fear of the socialization window is going to close. Oh, my God. And how that's probably not founded in any reality. But I did already record that podcast with Jessica. <laughs> yeah, that one came out. <laughs> <laughs> it's already out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, I think there's really something to be said about letting the dog show you when they're ready for something, right? Mm. And having prerequisite skills in place. And that doesn't necessarily mean just splitting the nail trims when they're 
eight week old puppies and trying to train, you know, nail trims every day. My border collie was five years old before she ever saw a force dryer. And I was so sure, Mm -hmm. so sure that she was going to have a meltdown. I was like, I don't know. We'll see. I'll be ready to train it. I'll split it as much as I can. And because she had five years of trusting me and knowing that what I asked her to do was going to be safe and fine and benefit her, she was fine, like really fine. And it surprised Mm -hmm. me. She was also around, I think that was the same month that she actually met my goddaughter, like first kid that she actually met. Mm -hmm. And she was actually fine because Mm -hmm. every other scenario I had showed her was fine. She had skills and she had you as the place that she could hang her hat and lean on. And so she was okay. Okay. So you had this thing for three weeks. You got a lot done. (laughs) This cute little thing. Because you would have liked to have him for four or five. Can you talk to me about what you would have done had you had him longer? End of week three, husbandry's looking pretty slick. Leashing is not perfect, but it's functional. Yeah. So what are you going to do if you have two more weeks? Right. Having one more week would have been for me. That would have been so that I wasn't so pressed for time. For mm. sure, that's an industry thing. That was that was me not wanting to leave the industry, is having four weeks. I see. The training additions I would have made, I really only had a couple of days where I was able to practice leash pressure. So he struggled with the idea, I think, of the leash tightening on him because it felt very much like being trapped, being, being handled. That would be my guess. So I did teach him to yield into leash pressure. That was one of the last things I did. I would have loved to have had more time on that. I did start that before he had a leash on him. Once I was able to hold his collar and he loved loading into his crate, I practiced moving him into the crate by the collar. And that was quite a few days before I was putting a leash on him because I needed him to understand that leash pressure in a certain direction was not going to ensue a meltdown. But Again, prerequisite skills. He knew how to go in a crate. He knew I could hold his collar. I had a duration of probably four seconds when I started that. And so I put pressure towards the crate just by holding his collar. He had his initial moment where he froze and thought about fight flight and then was like, oh, but I love my crate and ran in. I let go of his collar. He got his treats. Again, happened gradually enough that he never had a meltdown but introducing the idea of yielding to leash was something I only had a little time to do. I would have loved to actually do some leash walking with him. Okay. So actually, functionally, not too much more. You would have felt better about the product that you handed over and you would have felt better about the process if you had had more time. But you really yeah. did get the job done in the allotted time. Yeah, I'm busting my ass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was hard. <laughs> and it was yeah. really hard. <laughs> and it was hard and I cried. <laughs> And I'm better at judging timelines of board and trains these days. I imagine that that is one of the biggest challenges to board and trains. Yeah. We do meet all the dogs before we give them any timeline. And of course, work within the owner's means and vacation schedules often. And yeah, for sure. I learned a little bit about trying to trying to squish some goals in. So I'm pretty clear now about what I what I think I can accomplish in the amount of time um, yeah. that I have. I would, and I would imagine it's a under promise over over deliver situation. Like when yeah, when best, it, when best carried out. I think that there is. It's easy to know your client and to either approach it from okay, these are your goals. This is how long I need. If the goals are the priority. Or this is how long you want him to stay. So this is what I can do. And I think as long as trainers know what they're talking about, actually show results and say it with authority, I really haven't had any client be like, well, why can't you do it faster? That's that's not yeah. usually the feedback. Yeah. It's yeah. okay, well, I, I only want him to go for two weeks. So let's knock off a goal. Yeah, which is a really great just client communication piece for everybody. Like it can't be... Well, I, the trainer, would like to do all of these things, and therefore, I need to keep the dog for six weeks. It has to be a merger of what does the client want to do? How much does the client want to spend? What is the client's ideal outcome? And then what can you provide within their means? It's not an opportunity for – it's not a foster. It's not a – Right. 
right? It's not a, I'm going to, it's not my passion project. Yeah. It's right. It's not an art piece that you are perfecting (laughs) and then, and then putting out. It is literally what do they need? What do they want? And how much time do I have? And so then what can I do in that time? It's a good skill, I think. And I think that that kind of skill really benefits trainers who are doing lessons as well. Know your timeline, know the dog. Mm -hmm. Once you have enough experience, be able to give them realistic expectations. And I think you get a lot of client trust that way. Right, for sure. For sure you do. Okay, so this is a case that we're considering resolved. What does that mean? Where is he now? What does he look like now? (laughs) Right, so Buck had a good turnover lesson. I, in this case, one of the complications that we have is that they lived an hour and a half from me, hour 40 minutes. So I really wasn't able to do ongoing lessons with them, which is part of why there was a lot of pressure on this particular case. They were quite far from me. They were quite far from the closest training facility that trained the way they would like to. And so the turnover lesson and homework piece was really important. I made sure they had videos. They got written homework as well. In a case like this, where all of our follow-up is going to be virtual, I spend a pretty long time, kind of as long as they need at the drop-off lesson. I ended up there for an hour and a half, an hour 40. And we were able to practice with the whole family, practice with the kids. We made it really clear what the adults were allowed to do versus what the kids were allowed to do. And turnover itself went quite well. Like with any board and train, when you have a change in location, you're going to have some level of aggression. So if, for example, there's like four stages to what I'm training, I'd like the, to get the dog to a four and then show the client three and four so that they know what mm-hmm. to do when they first get back and then can move into the more sustainable training. I did get quite a bit of follow-up communication with them. Um, he started to really struggle with wiping his paws, which was not one of the primary issues that we had uh, before his board and train. So it wasn't something that I put a lot of repetitions into. We got kind of unlucky with the weather and ended up hitting a really rainy, really muddy season right after he went home. And so he was getting overhandled for the mud. Um, They had a dog door. And so either she had to be able to let him in and out a ton while she was working from home or wipe his paws when he came through the dog door. So there were some complications with that that caused a little bit of regression Um, I was able to do a little bit of virtual work with them, but it's just a frustrating thing to have a young dog that isn't anything like your other dog that you have put quite a bit of money into at this point and Mm -hmm. they have access to me and they have access to, you know, my expertise and you still have to live with the dog. It's still hard. So there's a little bit of communication about those things being difficult. And of course I gave, you know, things to work on. And then we altered things as he got bigger. Some of the protocols like holding him became uh, unsustainable because he got too big to be held with one arm. And so we made some alterations. And then she was able to have some veterinary work done without drugs or panicking, which was a really big win for us. She was able at about eight months. So I had one who was about three and a half months at eight months. She was able to change his collar out to the next size up. She said, really with no issues. Uh, And I assume that she didn't use very much of a training protocol because we hadn't established one for removing Mm -hmm. his collar. So I think she just also just did it and it turned out okay because it didn't look like she was trying to trick him, which was something that he was really averse to. Uh, And then he got neutered right after that and I didn't hear from them for probably three months. And because she, because I had been an ear for her about all of her frustrations, I was really sure that it was not a case resolution. I was really sure that it was, that there was some failure in our goals, that, that he'd met some, but he hadn't met the ones that were really going to make a difference in this family's lives. But Were you sure about that because she wasn't talking to you? Because she wasn't talking to me, because all of my client interaction... <laughs> With her had been her reaching out for additional help, and she was and then frustrated. She stopped with- asking you for help, and then, and then you assumed it meant everything was bad. <laughs> of course, I did. I didn't hear anything about. 
She doesn't so, need help anymore. Obviously, everything has gone she terribly. Did. Oh, my God. So, yeah, it goes to show not hearing from a client doesn't mean the dog has killed them in their sleep. Often yep. it means they don't need me anymore. Yep. So she did reach out. I hadn't heard from her in about three months because I really was, I was hearing from her about once a month past when our virtual work was done. And then I didn't hear from her for a while. So I was sure she was unhappy. Um, and she reached out because they got a new little puppy. They lost, uh, very unfortunately, lost the other animals in their house. And so they wanted to get Buck a little puppy. And so they got a new little puppy and had some questions about him. And I was like, oh, how's Buck doing? And they're like, oh, he's great. He's he's all mature now. And I was like, oh. They were okay, like, he's perfect. That's fan- Thanks. Fantastic. Oh, I like how they, they were like, it's his maturity. It's certainly not yeah. all this training. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, uh, really big difference from him being... You know, eight months when they were very realistically talking to me about rehoming. And that was kind of the last I heard from them. And I was going to steal him because I was in love with him. And then I didn't I didn't hear from them. And so anyway, they were are very happy with him. They say that he still gets wiggly when they wipe his paws sometimes. But like normal puppy pulling his paw away from them. Hasn't had any panicking. They're able to leash him. They're able to walk him. The kids are able to pick him up and move him now. So really high level of success given that we were starting with bloodshed. So I'm pretty pretty pleased I with that say. one. I just needed to hear that they were <laughs> happy with it. <laughs> She needed to be told. You know what? Someone reinforced me. (laughs) Somebody (laughs) praise Ashley. She needs the praise. (laughs) I think it's fantastic. I think you did a great job. It was not an easy case for sure. The extent to which he found handling and leashing, just panic inducing, was pretty severe. I saw videos of it, y'all. So you can trust me. And in three weeks, getting him to the place that you got him is pretty great. So anything you'd like to add on Bucky's case? Buck? Buck the Boston. Buck the Boston? No, I. he's a really cool little dude. I've gotten to see videos of him since. And I'm just very happy that I could help this family get a dog that they were expecting to get. A little bit more closely aligned with their previous dog. For sure. For sure. So Ashley, where can people find you? out in the world yeah, of dog training. Uh, absolutely. So my name is Ashley Johnson. My company and my business partner, Rachel Vote, our company is Puppy Adventure Academy. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, at Puppy Adventure Academy, and our website is puppyadventureacademy.com. Excellent. Thanks so much for being a trainer showcase for me. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe wherever you heard this podcast. And don't forget to join Patreon at patreon.com slash cogdogradio. And if you're interested in more content like the stuff you heard here, I hope you'll check out my online courses, my membership, and all of my offerings at my website, sarahstremming.com. See you there.